0: Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen.
1: And I'm Sarah. We co host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting edge science right now.
0: They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people.
1: Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on. Of science, we're very pleased to welcome Curtis Kelly. Curtis is a professor at the Kansai University in Japan and founder of the Brain SIG and producer of a magazine that presents studies of the brain and learning. How am I doing? Am I getting this somewhat?
2: You got it. You got it.
1: <laughs> so you have a fascinating background and we're so excited to get into this, but you were just telling us about your life mission. Is to relieve the suffering in the classroom. So, Stephen, yeah, I, yeah. to step in, I want to know a little more about this life mission to begin with, and and also more about you, your your background, and
2: where
0: would you start? Can't say that without explaining it.
2: <laughs> okay, well, well, first of all, I'm not a super. I'm not a superhero of science. I'm a, a started out just as an English teacher, became fascinated with science and the brain, and since we're not being taught that in graduate school for English teachers, we decided to make our own organization that's gonna, where we're gonna teach ourselves and teach each other. This is sort of following the mind, brain and education idea that uh, brain sciences are not getting into the classroom. There's a big gap there. And I think what drove me is just what I said, relieve the suffering of the classroom. You know, I was a bad language student. I had trouble learning Spanish, so I dropped out of Spanish and took up Japanese, what a mistake, which is even harder, but I could never, I don't know, I just couldn't learn languages very well, and I, I didn't know at the time, but it was because I was in a place where Spanish and Japanese weren't being used, so my brain automatically rejected it, no matter how hard I thought I need this, my brain would reject that kind of learning because it wasn't helping me, or it wasn't necessary in my life. There was no what we call language needs, and I see that in Japan. You know, we we say memorize this for the test and learn this, and there's so many students that seem to be trying, but they just can't get it. They just can't retain it for very long. And English classes can be pretty miserable if they're taught in wrote, you know, translation, grammar, translation, and wrote learning techniques. I've seen, I went to a high school once and watched a teacher and teacher was great, but there was this boy who just kept his head like face down, just looking straight down at his desk because he felt so, he lost so much confidence in himself in English class. And that was the kind of suffering I thought I devote my life to trying to fix. So I make interesting textbooks. I'm a textbook writer, I've written about 33 books. And I make interesting books, like a textbook is based on a diary. Right now I'm looking one. wanna see if I have a copy of it here. The Snoop Detective School, this is the original version of it, where students solve mysteries, murder mysteries and things. You know, like nice, looking nice. at different pictures, they have to solve these murder mysteries using English. So that's, that's fun. And even mm-hmm. students that don't like English like doing something like that. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty long answer, sorry, how's that? <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: great, that's great. I, I especially, I really identify having been in the classroom, well, you know, of course we've been students, but also having been in the classroom on the other side of the desk as a teacher, I think I really strongly, that, that suffering in the classroom, I really, yeah. I've seen this firsthand, both as a student and as a teacher. And I think this is just, it's fantastic that, you, this, that you're on a mission to relieve students of this because I think that is um, much appreciated.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, even now, after what, 45 years of teaching, I'm finding new things all the time. And a lot of what I find comes from brain science. Like recently, I was interested in the social brain. You know, Matthew Lieberman gave that great presentation. Louis Cozzolino has a book called you Know Tribal, I uh, can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's about attachment theory and, and how really learning is a social thing. Then I've done some research on how students that don't have friends don't do as well academically. They're more likely to go into depression, having other problems. So now recently, I've been really interested in how con- students connecting to each other is so critically important, especially about the ages of about 18, 17 or 18 around that time. And so as a teacher, I'm remaking the way that I teach to have students be able to connect to each other, make friends, to work together, to collaborate instead of the old competition model that a lot of school was based on.
0: Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, sir. I, you're in to ask something. I was about to cut you off.
1: Well, I well, So, so you say you, you've, you're speaking about students having friends and how this could potentially help them learn things better. What are some strategies you, you've used, especially um, what I've noticed in a, maybe a, a rural classroom is sometimes those cliques run pretty strong and the kids want to work with their friends. And so, so is this like, do you know? Maybe I'm asking you too many things. Is this a problem? No, no, no. no. Combat something like this? Can you use okay. that advantage? Mm-hmm. In case there's
2: any teachers out there, first of all, um, reduce your teacher talk time and have students discuss. And we know this too from psychology, brain science, education studies that really you only really learn something deeply when you get a chance to discuss it and integrate it you know, or do projects on it, things like that. You can't just listen and learn. Instead of teaching here, you should be teaching here and here as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So for language teachers, we tend to have a little bit of what we call pair work, where students will do this little inter, you know interaction together. Then we go on to something else, you know, studying grammar or whatever. But a really good technique that's underused in my field is what's called dyadic pairs and especially first-year college students who I teach they're in this drive to find friends it's it's the what I call the 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 dangerous year from high school to college when the rates of depression and suicide go triple for students because at the end of high school they're you know going through entrance exams and things like that and the first years of college they're are suddenly thrown out of this community into a place where they don't know anybody and they need friends at that time. So I do this thing called dyadic circles where student pairs will face each other. They'll do some interaction. have a couple of minutes, I'll say, change. Everybody shifts a person to the right and they do it again. And doing that three or four times lets them meet people they don't know, not just their friends, but new friends mm-hmm. and The more times I do that kind of activity in a class, the more the students will respond later that they like the class because their their drive is to find friends. And teachers anywhere, you know, instead of like, we're too focused on ourselves. One advice I give to young people is forget yourself, you know, young teachers, forget about the curriculum or what you have to do today instead focus on their needs and watch them very carefully. And so, yeah. So having students, setting up activities where students can interact or make friends leads to better learning. It's putting students in the brain state that they need to be in for learning. Did I skip anything? It's 6.30 here in the morning, so.
0: Well, that brings us in to some, something that we were going to discuss anyway, the, the story side of things, because you had mentioned that the brain is wired to learn from stories. And I'd really like to, to, to understand what you mean by that. It, 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 yeah. Very selfishly, I'll throw it out there. I'll be honest with you all. Um, it's just totally selfish because then uh, Sarah and I have a shared document for podcasts. And the, the very top of that for the last year has been, what is your story? Oh, yes. Because we, I mean, through our discussion, we're like, we really need to to know what the story is. And we're teaching content, but we want to know what the story is behind it. And so somehow we've migrated to that. And so then when we're emailing with you, you're like, yeah, you know, the brain is wired to learn from stories. And so I really want to know more about that and uh, possibly just so I can say, yeah, we were on it. Um,
2: (laughs) Well, it. Uh, there have been people in my field that have said that kind of minor people that you know tell stories in class and whatnot and I heard the first one about 25 years ago Andrew Wright and so I started getting kind of good stories for the classroom to, to tell at the end of class and the kind of stories that worked weren't like you know Aesop's fables or ancient folk tales so things like chicken soup for the soul i don't know if you're old enough to know that that series that came out with you know really moving stories by by people i go through those and pick out stories and you know simplify them and tell them at the end of the class and suddenly the class become quiet and everybody was completely absorbed in it so let me know that there is something special about stories and then the class reviews too you know, I mean, I teach these 85-minute lessons with five-minute stories and what everybody commented on in the reviews was, you know, the class evaluations, was how the stories were so good. So I started doing research on that. And let me just give you a little bit of scientific data here. Some things were found. Kind of the 80s and the early 90s were sort of the age of narrative and research and education. There's not too much going on now, but a little bit but like um, Oakes found that retention from narrative lectures is better than traditional lectures. A couple people, Berkowitz and Taylor found that children rec- recall more information from narrative lectures than like expository passages if they read them. And then there's other research that shows that this is true for kindergartners, high schoolers, adults. Um, one studies found that uh, narrative texts are read and learned twice as fast and retained twice as long as expository texts. And even in for science teachers, having students make a little narrative out of some information themselves helps them recall. And the big one was two studies that found that students given lists of words to remember compared to any way they want to do it, like repeating or writing them down or practicing that way. The students that were given lists of words and told to make stories out of them, even silly stories, remembered the words two to seven times more words than the other group. So there's a super thing about stories that our brains are built to understand stories, to get information from it, and to retain it. Learn twice as quickly and remember twice as long.
0: Yeah, see, so yeah, to, to me that makes sense, and it, yeah. it's it, and someone listening might be like, "Well, I'm not a teacher, you know. I, I, you, maybe you're not a public teacher, public school teacher, but we're all teachers at some point. We're always, we're just, at some point, we're all trying to teach someone something different, and so." thinking about the concept of how you're trying to teach them i remember when i worked in a factory i mean teaching someone literally the effective way of opening and folding boxes and stuff like that but it's i i think the things i remember the most were were probably the things from coop stuff that were telling me stories oh this person did this okay i know not to do that you know (laughs) things like that those those are things that helped me remember when when i was before i was in education
2: Psychology Today magazine interviewed a lawyer who'd won three hundred cases. I don't think he'd ever lost one at the time they interviewed him. And they said, "How? What's your secret?" And he says, "Why well, put everything into a story? If there's legislation of whether to put a traffic light on this corner or not, I'll tell him a story. Well, imagine you're driving down the street, and your daughter's next to you, and you can't see this truck coming the other way. You know, he uses stories to convince the audience of, of the point he's making, and." You have children, don't you, Stephen? Like oh, yes. Ten-year-old? Well, no, no. Th- now they're a little older. They're older? Okay. Do you tell your children's... Did you tell your t- children's stories when they were little? Oh, I did, and I still do. And they what advantage you, As much as they used to. <laughs> what advantage do you think that gives children?
0: I think it helps them be more creative. It may help them think about things differently. That was one uh-huh. thing that I did early on, um, I remember with my son and, and I mean, sure, I read books at times and stuff, but there were more we were making up stories and working on imagination and and then tying in different things. And it's like even in, when in the classroom, one of my favorite lessons as I'm thinking through fourth grade is we talk about rock cycle. One of my favorite lessons is tell a story. They have to write a story about a rock. Now, in that, in my rubric, oh. we have, so what are we doing? You, you, you pick a rock, you name that rock, you tell me the story behind it. So maybe they found a metamorphic rock. Oh, my rock is, name is George. George has had a lot of pressure over time. A lot of pressure <laughs> to help form George. And, you know, it's all these different things. And they have to come up with this background, the story of this rock. And that's why so this mean, is a
2: geology class.
0: Hmm? Is this for a
2: geology class? Uh, this was for an elementary class, just a regular elementary, elementary class. class. You're still teaching geology to some degree. Well, yeah. E.O. Wilson, this is one of the reasons that we've evolved to get information from stories. Uh, E.O. Wilson said something um, The stories we tell each other and ourselves are survival manuals. Yeah. They give us information about how to navigate in the world, Mm -hmm. especially the really complicated social world that we're all living in. And that's why people who read stories um, tend to be better at understanding other people. People who read a lot of fiction are better at understanding other people's perspectives. There have been some studies that have found that. And I, I don't know, like romance novels, are 50% of all the books sold are romance novels. And something like 97% of the readers are women. And boy, all the women I've ever engaged with know a lot more about what romance should be than I do. i failed so many times, but they always, always seem to be done. I feel like this is a dangerous road. <laughs> I, I, maybe we have to cut this out, I'm not sure. This, this is Japan where we, really, we don't gonna be less pc I suppose with me I'm not well, sure that's okay for America
1: <laughs> I think in ge- generally speaking though what you're saying I think it makes sense your brain makes sense from the story so it's a it's a way of organizing information and, and like you said with the students given list of words to organize them however they'd like whether it's a song or you know alphabetically yeah. or you know that there's there's something to that placing it into a, a story narrative that's going to help you remember it better I think it's just that Maybe that organizational process that the brain goes through to remember that. So it's it's, it's a type yeah. of organization.
2: Oh, that's that's good, Sarah, because we don't remember the story wrote necessarily. We're always putting ourselves in the story. <laughs> Somehow we're one of the characters. We don't realize that, but we're getting the kind of the moral value from that. Well, anyway, can I tell you a story, a little short one? This is about stories, so we should have a story. Well, of course.
0: That makes sense.
2: (laughs) I I have a daughter, and when she was, you know, like three or four years old, I really thought about what kind of a daughter do I want to raise? I have two daughters, actually, but this is the first one. Her name's Alice. What kind of a daughter do I want to raise? I want to raise one who's smart and education and scholarly, like most Japanese parents raise their kids. I thought... I want to raise a daughter who has a really good heart, you know, human relations. And so every night I'd make up stories about, you know, friends fighting, then getting, getting along. And I was trying to make stories that would give her information about the heart and relationships, accepting people that other people don't like, those kinds of stories every single night. I've got probably 1,200 recorded in my iPhone. And I wasn't sure if that was working or not. then one day something happened i was downstairs in the bedroom reading a book my wife screamed ah kelly and she came running down the stairs and i knew that scream that means there was a bug in the living room or something and she said that's it there's a little there's a really strange bug in the living it's just a little thing like this you know a strange bug in the living room i said okay i'll get it and i took some tissue and started to go upstairs and Alice started to look really disturbed and she was behind my mom, my, her mother when she when he ran down the stairs. And I said, don't worry, Alice, I'll get it. And he said, no, Daddy, you're carrying tissue. That means you're going to kill it. But that bug has a mommy and a daddy, too. <laughs> and just at that moment, she was four years old, Alice, you know, making that connection. I knew the stories were working. <laughs> I said, OK, Alice, I'll come with me. They took the bug, got on the tissue, opened the window. And that's a story about how stories work. Very nice.
0: I know when we do the teacher professional development workshops, I think the teachers remember the stories we tell a lot more than they remember the content we're telling.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the thing about stories, older stories have a different moral message, like don't trust strangers. Mm-hmm. You can only count on your family. Stay out of the woods because it's dangerous. <laughs> well, maybe that's still useful, but <laughs> but that's why chicken soup for the soul, modern stories about modern people facing real problems and resolving them. That's why those kind of stories are useful for my college students. Because mm-hmm. they're going through what's called moral development. This is an old idea in psychology. In their late teens, we're trying to break away from their families and to do that they have to have their own sense of right or wrong and values so they're just like drinking up these stories which are kind of showing them about human relations and of course we watch stories all the time in movies and television shows and other things so story is a big part of our lives but that's why you know if you can't like uh, John Cabot's insight if you can't stop the you can't stop the waves but you can learn how to ride them. So finding these places where young people are developing and writing that way works so well for us teachers.
0: I certainly like that analogy. And I think a lot of times we we're, we're not aware that there is a story. Because we haven't thought yeah. about it. And I love that you're, you're talking yeah. about how, you know, it's research is supporting the fact that we do comprehend and we retain a lot better when things are in a story form. And a lot of times we don't realize it's, I mean, anything about any popular movie, whatever your genre, there's a story behind in that each of those. And so it's, it, we are retaining and enjoying at a subconscious level. We don't even realize the story, the fact of the story, the storytelling, the unfolding. And mm-hmm. what, one of the mo, mo, more popular, I'm, I don't understand why more popular than us, but one of the more popular uh, types of podcasts are your, your crime, your true crime podcasts. I know, I know my wife listens to these things, and, uh, but it's someone telling the story of what happened. And so I, I think that uh-huh. goes to even support what, what you're saying with the research is saying that we all tend to, uh, our brains just kind of wired, we retain better, we understand better when it's a story form
2: and uh, so that, that leads to a second reason why stories are so powerful mm-hmm. and that is our brains are built to work through metaphor
1: mm-hmm.
2: so really the story really might be you know like the goldilocks and the three bears which we're never going to encounter a bear or get lost in the forest or like sleeping beauty fall asleep for for you know Twenty days, or what was it? A year, or something like that. Don't, you know, Long time. <laughs> Disney stories. But we can take information out of those and, and and use it ourselves because our brains are built for metaphor and language too. This is where uh, Johnson and Lakoff have done a lot of research. Basically, at the at the very neuro, you know, the neurological level, when we learn something new, we don't make a whole new area of the brain where that information is kept. Our brain's always connecting older areas to solve tasks, existing areas. And so we're using what we already have and then making something new out of it. And that's what I'm saying. It's a little bit hard to explain, but that's what we do when we learn words and things too. Now we're finding out from cognitive psychology and other areas that Words in our brains aren't like little dictionary entries. They're actually based on physical experiences. So if I say Justin Timberlake has a velvety voice, you hear timber and lake, and your auditory area will flash timber and lakes until you realize it's a name. Velvet, you'll cause your somatosensory area to light up in the, su- the feel of velvet. Mm-hmm. That's so we're actually taking our own physical experiences in the real world. To understand what language is, including abstract language, like couch potato, there's a really you know easy metaphor to understand how I am on weekends. But all of us understand that a little too well. <laughs> so our brain is really good at taking ideas and transferring them into something else for us. So metaphor. This
1: kind it of reminds me. I know I, I get a lot of good feedback from kids. Um, when we, like, let's say if, if we were learning something about, something about the elements or something in a chemistry class, uh, I always had a bad, ha- well, I don't know that's a bad habit, but I would personify the elements. So if we're talking about how they're related in a column or something, so, well, these are the cool kids on the block, you know, all the other elements want to be like them and they're going to do it. And, and years later, I would, kids come back to me. I love thinking about, you know, these <laughs> to them like they were people and they're not and and then at some point i'd have to stop and be like i know i keep calling like treating them like people they're not they don't know what they're doing they're just there you know in this space interact i don't know what they're doing but the kids seem to relate better and and now it's kind of like listening to you say this i think that kind of makes sense i guess it it's not that it was a story but it was making it relatable for them to
2: learn something that's exactly it's what you're doing is your metaphor is basically describing something complicated by something else we already know yeah. we all know people we know good kids on the block you know so right which, which elements are the good kids on the block by the way oh <laughs> <Hydrogen are.
1: laughs> um, I, the halogen column I say so the noble gases let's see I, which ones were, they? yeah, I always talked about the noble gases, because they just, they they had that full outer shell, that full valence shell, and they just, they were cool, they liked themselves how they were, and they, they didn't <laughs> you know, want to bond to them, now all the other, and so the halogens were right next to them, so I'd always say, you know, they would stop at nothing to be like the noble gas that they're right next to, they, they would, they would steal and do whatever they could to be like, these. and so the kids would get these, you know, they build these relationships on the, you know, what, yeah, yeah. you know, however they're,
2: Oh, but that, a, yeah, but that's perfect. That's a perfect example how to make somebody connect to something and relate to it in a way that they understand it, you know, that these are the good kids and these are the bad kids and, <laughs> you know, with everybody else. So, yeah, that, that's that's a perfect example of how our brains are built to learn things through metaphor, too.
1: Yeah, no, I like that. So, that. That makes a lot of sense to me.
2: Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so you've already identified some of the reasons why stories, our brains are recall stories. They teach us about life. They help us understand complex things through metaphor and give us rules for how to do things. I remember once when I had this really terrible situation with my girlfriend at the time, I remembered a story of somebody else And it made me change my whole attitude about it and treat her differently that she wanted to break up was really good for her something like that but yeah stories give us these manuals for living life and they deal with metaphor but but there's one more reason why the narrative format fits our brains and this is, there are some studies that found that familiarity and interestingness, you know, we think, well, stories are interesting, so remember, but there's another reason. It's just something the narrative format itself that fits our brains. I'm gonna see if you can guess what that is. It took me years to figure this out. But what, if I were to just make this sentence, the sentence, the brain is a something, something machine. What words could you put in there? Of course, there's many possible words. Oh, oh, mercy! Uh, I would say ever evolving or ever changing. Ever evolving. I mean, about what it what the brain does. So you may say a brain's a thinking machine, mm-hmm. and that that's kind of true to some degree. Although, but there's another word that starts with a P that I heard on a podcast once, and <laughs> just completely really changed my thinking. This is all
0: you,
1: Sarah? Um
2: something our brain's doing all the time. In fact. Processing. um, So what?
1: Processing.
2: Processing, okay, getting closer. It's a kind of process. Okay. In fact, um, people, some researchers, some experts in memory say the only reason we have memory is so that we can, upcoming, Situations.
1: Predict. <laughs> yes, that's it. So the I'm like I'm struggling here. <laughs> <laughs> to predict what's maybe coming.
2: Yes, the reason the only reason we have memory is so we can predict well, what's going to happen in the next few seconds. You know, in this situation. Um, like if I'm riding my bicycle down a hill, I'm going to remember that time I saw a movie of somebody falling over on the hill or or, or when I lost control of myself. So I'm going to slow down. Uh, so yeah, our brains are prediction machines. We're constantly predicting the next few seconds unconsciously, you know, subconsciously, of course, and what's going to happen.
0: I like this. I, I really like this, especially because it's a uh... One of the things we recently pushed was an older podcast that we did with Mike Baldwin, who's a meteorologist. He talked about weather models and how weather models, mm-hmm. and I'd asked him in the in an interview because I taught it this way. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm like, so weather models aren't really necessarily predicting the future as much as they're telling us the past. They're saying, you know, 50 per, you know, 60% of the time when the weather conditions were about like this, this happened. And so basically, oh. you're just telling us of what already happened. And so uh, this ties yeah, in. I mean, this fits really well, I think, with what you're saying. Not only are meteorological models kind of using the past to predict the future,
2: we're doing that internally as well. Yes, with our internal models. There's a perfect metaphor again. You know, our brain is developing all these models about how the brain works. I mean, it's how the world works. You know, th- th- we get through novels and through movies and from our own experiences and talking to friends and we're seeing if these models work. or something strange, it some of you all stop because that means there's this new rewiring going on. There's a whole field in neuroscience called predictive processing that I'm just completely fascinated with. And actually, you know, we've always thought of the brain as being like a computer, you know, processing incoming information, but it's not. We're actually predicting things happening. And actually, rather than just getting input and then processing it. We're predicting what we're going to see, and it's only the things that don't sort of match our predictions that make us stop and we take notice of. Mm -hmm. They're actually outgoing oscillations in our brain to our sensory areas that'll, what we're already predicting, that'll kind of delete incoming information that already fits it. So it's only the things that don't fit our expectations that come through. Like if I see somebody with, uh, what's a coffee shop uh, McDonald's coffee sitting in a Starbucks I'll take a kind of second look because I'm expecting yeah. everybody who's going yeah. to have Starbucks cups in fact I might not even see that it's a McDonald's cup I might even gloss over that you know because my brain's already predicting it'll be Starbucks cups that people be holding so you know I might not even see that and that also gets into some of the terrible things that happen where police shoot people when they pull a phone out of their pocket or a pen or something they say well I thought it was a gun well actually they did see a gun because in that traumatic situation that dangerous situation that's what their brain is already predicting and they don't have time to really look carefully so so we have some of the tragedies that occur from that sort of super predictive process of the brain well think about stories the narrative arc stories are all cause and effect. Mm -hmm. He said this, so she did that. She did that, so they did this. Stories are all cause and effect and that fits the way that our brain operates in the world. Cause and effect and prediction, right? Yeah. So that's another reason the stories are so easy to pull in and use in our models and predictive processes unlike a lecture, which is taking things and breaking it down into categories and, you know, one, twos and threes and lists and things like that. So that's another reason that the stories are so powerful as learning tools. Our brains are prediction machines.
0: I like that. I had not thought of it that way, but yeah, I guess that is pretty much what I'm doing
2: constantly is predicting, aren't I? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> That's oh, also, so that, that's also how you do language. Grammar is a tool that was developed by the predictive processing parts of our brain to, to reduce the cognitive load of having to process each word as it comes in. And I, I gave an ex- I gave a presentation on stories, as a matter of fact, in, in 2016 at a TESOL conference in Seattle, <laughs> And one of the things I said was this, you Americans, I can't believe you elected, this is 2016, I stopped there and everybody just started laughing. <laughs> because This was after the US election, so uh-huh. they already, already filled in that sentence with the name of a president that was yeah. elected in 2016. I can't believe you elected pause and everybody starts laughing I said elected to come here to my presentation today instead of being out and playing tennis in this wonderful weather no well, anyways but we're, we're already predicting what words will be coming after the beginning of a sentence because of you know what's already there and again it's the models like meteorology based on uh previous conditions if i say he ate there's only so many things that can fit into that last slot Uh, you know, some kind of food or something like that, probably. Mm -hmm. So that's how our brains work as prediction machines with language, too. So I'm I'm laying a lot of stuff on you. This is all, you know, coming out of the... It is, because I haven't... I know.
1: Well, and, you know, I'm thinking of this a little beyond this, too. Um, My children have such a straight... Well, what I think is such a strange... They find some of the strangest things funny and especially yeah
2: they're your kids
1: I know well okay right so we'll give them that there is
2: <laughs> okay Sarah you got kids I, I, I wasn't sure whether it was okay to ask or not
1: yeah so well how... so my my son right now is <laughs> he's 16 and uh-huh. he wants to share with me thing like these things on TikTok or just different he's like mom this is so funny and he wants me to watch these with him and I'll watch it and I'm just like really, that's not funny, you know, and you no, know, this is the funniest thing, you know, said, it. but when I'm, I'm listening to you talk about this predictive thing and it's hitting me now, I think it's, I think what he's finding funny is things that are not able to be predicted. I think it's something, it's like something that's totally off base that I'm not finding it funny at all because it's not what I'm predicting and I think that's exactly what he's finding funny is it's so shocking that he like it's it he doesn't know how to respond.
2: Good, good, good. This is good. Yeah, yeah, this is good. And you think about humor is basically interrupting our predictions. Yeah. You know if I say I found a bomb in my office Clip art file. You know, you're you're processing it one way and then suddenly there's something that changes from that. So humor is going against our predictive processing to give us something surprising and we're very sensitive to novelty and error. Novelty is basically what we don't expect we're very sensitive to that because that means our model's not working. So our brain releases dopamine and other neurotransmitters that cause us to rewire that model and incorporate new stuff to it or change it. And that's why we feel good because dopamine is the neurotransmitter of reward, motivation, and uh, kind of neural rewiring and, and many other things. But So that's why humor or your son is sort of surprised by these... TED Talks <laughs> that don't go the way that he expects, but maybe you understand it because you've been around in the world longer. So, you know,
1: yeah. That's so, well, and and um, I had a teacher one time say that a lot of times laughter is our response when we don't know how else to respond. Sometimes I'll find myself mm-hmm. laughing at mm-hmm. things that just aren't funny at all. And I don't know why I'm laughing. My mom has this problem too. And we'll just like, people are people must think we're crazy. <laughs> well, you know, Stephen will say, yeah, I know.
2: <laughs> I, I would say completely normal the Stephen is a crazy one <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So,
1: but no I've, this is very very interesting to, to hear these um, these insights.
0: Now you you have a range of kids Sarah though well would you say you're youngest that's half that is it the similar?
1: Yes, so my, I don't know about the- Talk uh, about (laughs)
0: unpredictive, your youngest is
1: unpredictive. Yeah, he's about as unpredictive as you can get. He's 10, so um, yeah, yeah. His humor is probably more in line. Well, I think it's cute, but it's probably more of it. But yeah, very different from what the 16-year-old is finding funny.
0: (laughs) I like the fact that, I mean, you're throwing out, I mean- basically you defined humor i mean dang yeah i uh, did not expect someone to define humor for me but, but in the, the thing is you're you're right when i think yeah. about it mm-hmm. and I, I never like to admit when people are right but yeah <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's going against what i'm predicting and that that's why
1: it's it strikes you yeah, yeah. yeah. yes it's very yeah. striking yeah
2: novelty causes this dopamine so novelty in addition to stories Novelty is another thing that people learn from. So if I'm teaching, you know, fruit vocabulary, I'll say, "Okay, everybody, please repeat: grapes, oranges, pigs, apples." What? What did you say? Pigs? And they'll laugh a little bit, but they'll remember the other words too because their brain uh, gives them a little spurt of dopamine because of that error you know, that they encountered, and so they'll remember all the things from that experience better. Wow. And if so, you think about humor too, so- did you notice that humor in some cultures doesn't it doesn't transfer across cultures very well mm-hmm. because we have these different models. And in fact, how do we get culture? Why do most Americans have basically the same culture? Where does that, how is that instilled in us? A lot of it's through stories. Like now, John, you know, if I turn on Netflix, it says John Wick 2 is now available. John Wick and Rambo and Die Hard. Those are all stories that are telling you that one person can do it all. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're self-sufficient and you're strong enough, you you can succeed. Even Home Alone, you know that old one. No, if you look at Japanese I don't, I don't stories,
0: cartoons, Milan and all these, it's
2: uh-huh. that is yeah, but, right. All all the uh, the princesses, and fortunately, the new Disney with um, the Miranda family, without a princess for a change. But all of these stories are kind of giving us this sort of cultural values. Whereas Japanese stories are, you can't succeed by yourself. So Momotaro is fighting the ogres and he has to get a team together and the seven samurai you know the they have to have a team to do it the the individual is not strong it's the group that's strong so it's teaching kind of more of an individualistic orientation versus a groupistic orientation you know group oriented culture so even culture comes to us through stories a lot of times oh that's so that's
0: very interesting. Uh, being, oh, I've never been immersed outside of a U.S. culture more than a week um, or two, I guess, <laughs> here and there. And so uh, that's uh, that, that's very that's very insightful.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's very insightful that uh, about that. I had once again not thought of it that way. It, well, mm-hmm. I guess I, I was ignorant of it because I didn't know what other cultures what their dominant story
2: was, mm-hmm. as you put. And so uh, that's huh. Well let's take stories a little bit further then um, now we're beginning to understand that even your personal identity is a, the collection of stories about yourself that you have we have a part of this this the default mode network in the brain we used to think it was just where daydreaming happened it wasn't very important but it was always turning on at kind of interesting times now we're finding out this this default mode network is, really involved in all kinds of processing, all thinking about the future, prediction. And it's also part of the story maker is mainly located there. Taking in information and making a story from why is that happening? We make a little story, you know, the cause and effect and things like that. And even your personal identity is like a collection of stories about yourself from the past. Psychologists are believing that these days. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a pretty interesting thought
0: it definitely plausible as i reflect yeah, that, i mean it's once you get to be you know over a couple hundred years old like i am <laughs> and to be telling the same stories quite
2: frequently and uh yeah
0: i don't know how many times my kids are like oh yeah this story again
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> i get that too and i think it's, it's because of you know memory problems for <laughs> oh i already told them that oh shucks what am i gonna do <laughs> yeah
0: exactly <laughs> well, this is awesome. This, this was a insightful. I was, I kind of expected stories, but then we progressed beyond that. And I love the fact that the information, especially about your, your brain releasing and dopamine, uh, when you encounter something counterintuitive, I'll say, that you're trying to predict. I, I absolutely love that. That's, again, something I didn't know. And so uh, my brain's a little excited now because I got to learn something new today. And we certainly appreciate the time that you've taken to uh, help enlighten us and our audience. Is it audience, is that what we say? Network, I don't know what they are. All those people that actually listen. And-
1: uh, (laughs) We appreciate you if you're
2: listening. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Thank you, thank you very much. And can can I just mention somebody that I appreciate? Oh, wow. You interviewed her a couple weeks ago. Ginger Campbell, mm-hmm. the Brain Science Podcast. I was just a typical teacher that was making students miserable, wondering <laughs> out how not to. So, you know, Studying psychology and culture helped a bit, but it was really what helped me get into neuroscience were her podcasts, the Brain Science Podcast. Awesome. I've listened to every one of them. There's about 190 or something like that, more now. But That's been my like graduate school about the brain and helping me realize there's a lot of stuff out there that's not making it to education, Mm -hmm. but learning and language are both like deep processes of the brain. We've got to know more as teachers and they're not teaching us in graduate school. So that's what sort of led me towards producing this magazine or making these organizations that are to learn more about how the brain works, like the importance of stories. The importance of emotion and learning um, that our brains are predicting language rather than processing each word as it comes in you know, there's lots of things in there that could make us better teachers and so I have to say thanks to Ginger Campbell for those wonderful podcasts and all the people she's interviewed that have changed my life
0: so we definitely I'm not a superhero
2: them. science but she's brought them to me myself
0: no one thinks they are but uh... I know say so we we definitely enjoyed uh, interviewing her and uh, yeah. I, I, I'm on her mailing list now. Uh, after we yeah. interviewed her, I was immediately on her mailing list. <laughs> I'm like, all right, this is even cooler than I realized. And so uh, yeah those those are that's one that I listen to myself now. Yeah, so, yeah she's helped a lot. Of us. Yeah, um, we appreciate immensely your time with this. Yes uh, thank you so
1: much sharing with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science.
0: If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Wirl the rope.
1: Hammer down.